You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. Welcome to Episode 4. We're speaking to Jonathan Higgs from British band Everything Everything. Everything burst onto the UK music scene 10 years ago with their critically acclaimed debut, Man Alive, a math rock band. This means they're often concerned with odd time signatures, complex rhythms, and angular guitar sounds. They typically look to progressive rock rather than pop for inspiration. Frontman Jonathan Higgs started the band straight out of university with friends Jeremy Prichard on bass and Michael Spearman on drums. Guitarist Alex Robertshaw joined the band soon after. Based in Manchester, they've been nominated for the prestigious Mercury Prize twice and the Ivor Novello Award for songwriting five times. Their music has always been political and socially aware, but in the course of a decade, the songwriting has evolved. In this episode, Jonathan explains how reading psychologist Julian Jane's book on the origin of consciousness inspired his writing on their upcoming fifth album, Reanimator. Hello, this is Jonathan from Everything Everything. I am talking about Reanimator, which is our new record released on September the 11th. And we're going on tour next year in March. Come and check it out. That's next year. For now, we're speaking to Jonathan from his childhood family home. We're all in lockdown, so you might hear his family, including a baby in the background. As we were unable to get into a quiet room or studio with Jonathan, the audio is sometimes less than perfect. Without further ado, speaking from his old bedroom where he once made music tinkering on a computer, Jonathan starts off by sharing some of his early musical influences. I grew up um, where I am now, actually, which is North England. It's very near Scotland, very top of the country, the borderlands. Um, I do have an older brother and two sisters. He started playing the bass when he was about 14 and I was about 10. Um, and I picked it up not long afterwards. And yeah, I was influenced by his music. But more so, um, we had a cousin in Canada and we went to Canada and my brother came home with loads of tapes from him and he would play them all the time. I was probably 11. We shared a room, this room. And... Um, it was Smashing Pumpkins and it was um, Porno for Pyros, um, lots of American early 90s grunge and stuff like that. And obviously that went into my little brain and uh, didn't really come out. It's still coming out now. <laughs> that was the music of the time, but we didn't really have any way of getting it um, where I lived. It wasn't on the radio and it wasn't on the TV. We didn't have a TV and none of my friends at school knew about Kurt Cobain, you know, nothing like that. So it suddenly came through this North American connection. What is a childhood like without TV? <laughs> Did you have workarounds? Did you go to your friend's house and watch it? I saw it at my friend's house, but I didn't have it at home. Um, funnily enough, though, we did have computers. We always had PCs. Um, we didn't have like, you know, Sega, but we had PCs and we could play games and we could 
use them for, to make music actually and to we used to write our own games and do sort of very basic programming when I was very young. Um, but yeah, the main, I think the main thing I used to do was go out and invent worlds with my friends. Um, that was like the, the basic play we had would be to go to a field, usually holding sticks like weapons and pretend to fight different monsters and just make up make up whole stories and and uh, and worlds just from our imaginations. We had the freedom to do that outdoors, which was really good. Yeah, I can remember getting some very early music software. I didn't know what it was. It was a demo, and I just made music using just the demo. You couldn't save. So I used to just make the song and then record it straight out onto a tape and then had to shut down the computer and it was gone. It was like that. But I still made hundreds and hundreds of things on it. Um, as a very little kid. In fact, I've got a tape with me um, singing, well, sort of shouting on it. And I've got like a high voice and I've made all these songs on a keyboard. Yeah, it's very, very silly. But yeah, it was always encouraged. So I think that was a big part of it too. So was your family musical? They were. Um, my mum my is anyway. My dad's awful. But um, we were all, all us kids were taught classical instruments. So I was on the trumpet and my sister was on the clarinet. My brother was on the violin. We have a piano in the house. My mum plays the guitar. She sings in a choir. Um, lots of music and lots of music from the 60s and 70s records and stuff would get played constantly. And we had a really good relationship with music growing up. What's like the youngest memory you have of either with a record collection or just having that moment of, wow, what, what is that song and how did they do that? You know, it's like just kind of being really cognizant that there's music playing and, and how did they write that? Yeah, I remember um, Sergeant Peppers and I remember the um, day in the life and sort of, I think I'd seen in that period of my life, I'd seen a, a distressing episode of an Australian soap called Neighbours around at my friend's house. And um, one of the characters was on his way to see his pregnant girlfriend in the hospital and he got hit by a car and died. And I was just old enough to understand what that meant. And around the same time I heard day in the life. And there's that line about, he blew his mind out in the car. And it's quite a scary song with the, with the, the ascending orchestra at the end and just everything's a bit weird and trippy and there's sort of death and the sad thing about no one knew his name and all those things combined in my head at once. And I, I think I under, suddenly understood death through just listening to that song that day with that neighbor's thing in my head. And uh, yeah, it made a massive impact on me. And um, I realized that music could be frightening, which it never was before then um, and disorientating and, and give you more emotions than just movement or happiness or sadness. It could actually be scary. That whole album is incredible for its color and its like scope and all the rest of it. I mean, it's the Beatles, you know, but for a child, it's just as it's more powerful than it is for an adult. Mm. How old were you then? I don't know. I could probably work it out, but I'd say probably eight, nine, I think. Wow. So, I mean, I must have known about death, but I think I didn't, I didn't believe it until then or I, I never was affected by it, you know. So how old were you when you sort of started noodling around trying to make this music? Um, probably about 13, I think. I had this program. My dad downloaded it just as, just, I don't know why. <laughs> it's funny that he did that. Um, my, my friends down the road, they got a guitar and a drum kit because they came into some money and that's what they decided to get. And I realized all I have to do is pick up my brother's bass and then we've got a band because um, they had the other two instruments. So I did that and just we just started a band because we could. We were called Cloaca, which is a, it's like a dinosaur's butthole <laughs> or, or a chicken's. Yeah. We would play in the village hall, which is just over there. And we would practice every, pretty much every week or a few times a week. I was talking to those, those two guys just yesterday, funnily enough. And I was trying to remember how often we practice because it seems weird that we were so, so driven to do, to practice at all. We'd play really loud Nirvana covers really badly and I would be screaming like Kurt and just we must have sounded awful and everyone in the village had to hear it really and then slowly as we got better and we started to write our own songs and then we got a bass player I didn't have to play bass anymore and, and so on and so on and just kept going from there. 
really from about 13 till now I've been in a band continuously. Wow. Um, So even before you you went off to university, you were studying music in school as well, weren't you, apart from playing? Was it something that you thought at that stage that, oh, I can do this? Yeah. I'm going to do something in music, be a teacher or... No, I was going to be a front man in a band from day one. (laughs) Absolutely was. Yeah, I was. Not even joking. I never had any doubt. I just thought, well, I guess I better study music because... I have to keep going to school, but I'm going to be in a band. Um, I guess I'll do this for now. And then I got to uni and it's like, well, everyone's going to uni. I guess I better go to uni and go to study music, but I'm going to be in a band. And then I was. When you went to university, did you have preconceived notions of what being in a band would entail? And like, I think I saw you mentioned something about genres not mattering to you by the time you'd left university. That's probably true. I was very sort of tribal when I started uni and I only liked, you know, I don't even know, like math rock and some other things. But then I pretty quickly left all the tribalism behind and just sort of embraced everything, which is partly why we're called Everything Everything, and started listening to, I mean, I always did actually listen to loads of pop, but I started to tell people I listened to lots of pop, which was the difference. And I used to put the influence, you know, Craig David or Destiny's Child into my band and I didn't care anymore about how you know about about whether that was cool or not um that was the big difference I suppose by the time we came out of uni yeah I was ready to start the proper band I'd met everyone I I thought was good and I knew who would who would be good to be friends with forever and uh, (laughs) we had similar music tastes and all the rest of it and so yeah it was it was necessary but I don't know if I learned a huge amount. I just learned how to be in a band a bit better, I guess. And so you met the two members of the band at university, but it sort of didn't become everything, everything till you met Alex. I met Michael and Alex at high school. Yeah. And then I met Jeremy at uni and then old Alex left and new Alex came after that, just before we got signed. Old Alex left and new Alex came. Is this the same person we're talking about? It's a completely different Alex. So the first Alex was from high school, um, but he left just before we got signed, like two weeks before. And new Alex had to come and quickly learn all the songs and pretend he was, he'd was he always been there. And so the label would sign us, and they did, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. It's even crazier than that because the only reason we knew Alex was because we, when we played our first ever gig, we looked in the back of the NME to see our name printed and there was a misprint and it didn't say everything, everything. It said Opera House. So we looked up Opera House because we were angry and they had this incredible guitarist. So we basically made friends with Opera House because we thought their guitarist was so good. And then Opera House broke up around the same time our Alex left. So we we knew there was this guitarist who had no band, who was great, so somehow we tracked, you know, we got a hold of him and said, hey, quick, do you want to join our band? I know you're, I know yours has just split up. Ours is about to get signed. Do you want to join? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And he just did. Because of that misprint in the NME, we, we would never have known him. It was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. The foursome went on to release their Man Alive debut and were immediately shortlisted for the 2011 Mercury Prize. Their follow-up, Ark, garnered more press, but it was their third album, 2015's Get to Heaven, that really caught mainstream attention. Jonathan's laser-sharp focus on what he saw as one of the most violent years in our lives, referenced the ISIS beheading of a Manchester taxi driver, several mass shootings in America, and the creeping rise of the far right in Britain. Green. Mm-hmm. 
No reptiles also tapped into our collective sense of helplessness, with the onslaught of so much violence in the news, consumed via our phones and social media. Blast Doors was Jonathan's rant against it all, set to twitchy electronica and euphoria-inducing harmonies, urging that we wake up. You can tell a past boy, I can tell the future. Give me a lobotomy and I can be a tutor. Open up the blast doors, then we can be neutered. I can smell your fingerprints all over my computer. So give me all the black, brown, sticky sugar water. Swing you by your neck of my mouth, this can be your future. Something very strange about your picture in the mirror. When you move, it doesn't move. Now how could that be with it? Just keep on rubbing neck and yeah, whatever feels familiar. I can send my brain on a holiday forever. What's the songwriting process for you guys? I mean, especially on your debut album. Uh, I mean, like that's going back some time. You, you've been around for 10 years now, right? And I know just from listening to some of your music over the years that going from your second to your third album, there seemed to be incredible growth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just the way you wrote your music and just how the music really brought you in in a way that sometimes math rock doesn't always do that. It's like you have to put in the time, right, to get it, to get something back. Whereas I feel like with the third album, you really start to change and I, and I see it here as well. So what does it feel like for you, the, the, the four of you in a room? How has that changed? Um, well, to begin with, it was just me writing. Man Alive, I think, was like 90, 90% me, maybe more. Um, and then slowly Alex has written more to the point where get to heaven. He really started writing equally to me kind of thing. And then from then on, we've just written, we've both been writing the records. So what you're hearing is two songwriters really. Um, but there's also been changes in, in the way we write songs now, you know, I'm increasingly less interested in, um, music, and more interested in emotion and messages and things like that. I don't have the same desire to surprise and, and push music around in the same way. I just want to get my feelings across in the best way. Whereas Alex has got more and more kind of musically advanced as time has gone on. He's he's deep into his harmony and his scales and his rhythms and stuff in a way that maybe I was at uni almost, and he's become more and more and more like that, which is great because I've become less like that. But so he keeps us sounding like a band that's pushing, and I am always trying to be a band that speaks to you more. And both those things combined is great. I think if we were both one way, then we'd probably make very boring music or unapproachable music that, that no one cared about. But having both those things is, is perfect, and that's kind of where we're finding ourselves most comfortable. And he's doing more production work as well, so he's very concerned about how everything sounds and is produced and I don't really care anymore. I feel like it's just me banging a drum and singing the best lyrics I've ever written. I'd be happy to release that, which wouldn't do very well, but that shows you what what I'm most concerned with. He's basically produced the last record and the one we just made and we're talking about in the future just not even having a producer at all, you know, Alex doing it, which is fine by me. That's great. So I think when I spoke to you last time, you were talking about when you got when you were making get to heaven that there were moments there that it was just difficult because of a the subject matter you were writing about and um and also just you know the world was a depressing place oh it's got so much better since yeah <laughs> no it hasn't gotten better hmm. um um but um yeah and and also how hard it was for the other guys to maybe sometimes tap into what you were feeling and i think you gave me a very specific example of like a particular drum sound that was like really kind of angry and violent and and it just sounds great for the track but actually the backstory was it, it was done because someone was angry 
you were saying things like sometimes it's good to have a producer because there's a lot of like you're right in it and there's a bit of arguments here and there. You, nobody can decide who's in charge. So that yeah. worked. So this time I understand you had a producer. Was it John Congleton? That's right. Yeah. So how did that sort of help and also maybe help bring you to this realization that, hey, maybe we can do this on our own next time? Well, we've been thinking that for a while. We've been thinking that since um, we made... Um, fever dream really but we chose to have a producer again because we want what they bring to the table it's not so much that we can't do it without them it's that we want their input and we want their um their ideas or their attitude it's mostly attitude we're used to ourselves and we know left to our own devices i'm going to want very very extreme music alex is going to want very very detailed music mike and jeremy are going to want maybe a bit more uh, or not ordinary, but a word that's nice for them. Um, you know, a bit more, cons- not conservative even, but uh, less extreme music, put it that way. And those things don't always gel well because I'll, I'll, Alex will do some very complex thing and I'll say, no, we should have just a kick drum and why can't we have a, just a horrific thing happen here? And the Jeremy might be like, no, we don't want anything horrific. We want to make a nice song. And this can go on and on. And a producer will stop that and just say, the best thing to do is do John's thing, obviously. Um, <laughs> John Congleton brought a really nice confidence to us. We did the record very quick in two weeks. And he and we would say, okay, well, we've done, t- we've done one take of it. I guess I'll do a better take now. And he'd say, no, no, you, you're done. You're, you're a good band. Stop worrying. That's done. And it was very fast and done very confidently. But there's but there's a lot more errors and things on it, which just sound a lot more real and a lot more honest, which is good. It seems weird to me now that we ever ironed out all of the the reality from any from any of our records. It seems like a strange thing to do, but we did. Wow. Um, so with Get to Heaven, I think we talked about uh, your influences in uh, and people like Kanye West on you. That sort of um, rap thing, that rapid fire. Where did you get that from? Um, I guess it's from it's from hip hop, isn't it? It's from it's from Eminem. It's from any of those rappers. Um, but it's my knowledge that I I don't have an authentic voice in that world at all. Not even in in UK grime, and you know, I just just isn't. No one would believe me if I did that. So I have to, to, in order to be involved, because I love it, I have to sing rapping, if you know, if you know what I mean. No making it easy now, no making excuses now, no matter whose bombs on your bus, they're making examples of us. Fuck your brother on your helipad, if you study's out of deadbeat, dad, I told you I'm a highwayman, but your money isn't worth the time. I'm coming in cleaved into, y'all coming up steam right through, while I'm still a gene pool now, keep talking but it won't come out. Berklip refers to the congenital mouth defect that plagued members of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's ruling class and is believed to be caused by excessive inbreeding. This already complex song, fusing math rock principles with rap-style singing, is heightened further with Jonathan's scathing portrayal of the sort of nepotism and its enduring influence on corrupting politics today. I'd love to do a hip hop record, but it would just it would just be absurd because it's not me. It's not authentically me, and I know that. Um, so yeah, that's where it comes from. It's me. It's me wanting to be in that world. It's wanting me wanting to show that I love it and I get it, and I know why words, just words, can be all you need. So you don't need melody, and you don't need 
all the other stuff that a singer brings. Um, but I choose to sing it because that is what I am. I'm a singer, I'm not a rapper. So yeah, there's always one or two or three demos for every record that I'm going, I'm basically doing a rap type thing. And it's my job to force it past the other guys always. And sometimes they make it and sometimes they don't, but I'll keep doing it. Was there like any one song on Get to Heaven that a lot of it is quite intense and violent? Was there any song that they were just like, no, we don't think we need that? But yeah, sometimes when I push it too far, they pull me back from it. Or if I'm too down on myself and stuff like that, they, they don't like it very much. But this happens on literally every record. A lot of it got through on the Get to Heaven, you know, and people like it. So what can I say? <laughs> I think like Distant Paths and, and No Reptiles, of course, was such a fantastic song and it's so weird. Yeah, it is weird. It just <laughs> um, and um, and Hasberg Lip as well is just like one of yeah. the, the whole album was great, but those were the three that like stood out for me um, and like really sort of sealed it as like, okay, this is a band that I, I want to pay attention to. Heaven was a fever dream, another LP tackling racism, class and xenophobia in the lead up to Brexit. Pin the bunting on the gallows, dance around with your black face on, those lines threw shade on the powers that be and spoke to the moment highlighting the Black Lives Matter movement, systemic racism and white privilege. With fever dream, um, I think they thought Ivory Tower was kind mm -hmm. of prescient in in what we're dealing with now as well. Yeah. You know, I think that the line about the gallows um, yeah. and um, blackface, I mean, I don't know how many bands can get away with that. You'd be surprised what didn't make it onto Reanimator, actually, that was that was pushed off at the last minute. But um, anyway, that was an argument and a half. Um, yeah, I think as long as you set up the tone correctly and you make it clear enough that this isn't necessarily what I think. This is just some of the things you will hear if you're alive now, um, which is so often my songs are, my lyrics are not what I think. They are thing. They are quotes, invented quotes about of people on either side of a, a conflict, maybe. And I'm shouting both sides, and trying to um, illustrate the conflict without taking a side, just sort of saying, look, this is going on and this is kind of horrible or is everyone sick of this yet? Or, you know, this is just what it's like to be alive now. You're hearing this kind of crap in your ear and you're seeing this kind of crap on the TV. I think my job as an artist is to just reflect what's happening rather than judge everything all the time. Put Me Together strikes a gentler and more somber tone. It alludes to a failing relationship and is set against the backdrop of a general mistrust we now have of people living next door to us. You're leaving us 
another thing that I, I loved from Fever Dream was Put Me Together. Mm-hmm. I, it just it sounded so lovely, but it was just kind of this distrust in society that we were all going through, and you no, know, we're still obviously going through now, and it's worse. Yeah. I think th- at that point when when those songs came out, it was sort of like we can't say those things. Whereas now, like in America, you can just say things. The lid is off, and um, which which is like really interesting that your albums do that. They're really like a sign of the times. And I know that one of the things you said about this going into this album, I read some articles and you sort of said that I don't want to talk about Brexit. I don't want to talk about politics anymore. I've given Trump enough of my headspace. Yeah. You know, I just don't want to do that. But at the same time, I think it's there still. Of course, lots of the audience probably are thinking something similar, which is I, I want to do the same thing. Um, so even though I've tried to avoid doing what people are doing, I've ended up doing it by avoiding it because I think a lot of people are feeling just sick of it, just sick of all of it. And they want to think about something else, um, which is certainly me, or it was me a year and a half ago or whenever this started. Um, I'm certainly no closer to getting back into it. Or, I mean, I still, I still know all about it. I'm still up to date like everyone is, but I don't want to give all of my career to it. What were like um, lessons that you learned specifically from Get to Heaven that you took to Fever Dream and now you're also doing it with Reanimator. Um, good question. We we wanted to make dance music when we made a Fever Dream. Um, Alex had a an interest in sort of early warp records, so I think that was our goal. And there isn't really much dance music on on Get to Heaven. It isn't that that type of music at all. So that was really what we were doing there. And then moving to Reanimator, we wanted to make a, a selection of songs that could be played by anyone on anything that would be good, even if it was just a guitar and a voice. So without any gimmicks, that was that was our big idea for this record. Um, but how that, I mean, I'm very happy with Get to Heaven. So it wasn't like we usually have a record. After we made Man Alive, I was like, I want to make an album that people understand more, understand me more. So we made Ark, which I then felt was too sad and slow. So we made Get to Heaven, which was no nothing sad, nothing slow, quite pop. And then we thought, well, we want to make some actual dance music now. So that's what happened. And then, and now we've come to a sort of uh, not so much musical distance, but it was like, I want to make music that isn't about politics and isn't about conflict and um, pettiness. I want to make a much broader, universal kind of record. That's so that's the sort of evolution, really. But each album relates to the last one in as much as we try not to make it again. The concept behind Reanimator was twofold. The first was rooted in psychologist Julian Jane's theory of the bicameral mind, that the brain of ancient men was once split into two. But there was a defining moment when humans suddenly gained consciousness. The second idea is that of a reanimator, something that allows you to be conscious of the world around you, to wake up. For Jonathan, it was observing the milestones of those around him. It was a lot of things for a lot of people around me were having children, um, people were ending long long relationships. Um, that seemed to be a, the age we were at. Uh, it was like time to stop messing around with your life, time to start a new one or whatever. So yeah, for me personally, it was those those events. But I also felt that there was like a revolution in the air, that sort of feeling of people starting to question everything, question how they got to where they are, um, what the hell they've been doing all this time, have they have they been asleep, are they or were they a zombie, that kind of thing. So yeah, that was really I wanted to talk about it, not even as uh, as a thing that I'm pointing at. It's more whatever your reanimator is, you know, maybe it's this album, maybe it's uh something else in your life you know it's it's just it's it's like a, a celebration of whatever that thing may be so it's songs dedicated to to waking up dedicated to suddenly feeling alive i'm coming alive i've been talking about it since the start it's the same thing um but yeah so this thing the bicameral mind thing it it, it 
I don't know why it affected me so much, but it was like a, almost like a, a spiritual experience when I read this thing. It just felt like an explanation for gods, um, but with a scientific sort of basis, which felt awesome to me because that doesn't usually happen. Um, you either have to believe in something you can't prove or just don't believe anything, believe in science, you know? Um, and it just felt perfect for me. It was about, I love studying the brain. I love thinking about consciousness. I like science, but I'm also sort of more and more um, interested in the mystical and the and ancient history interested me too. Um, so all these things combined. And I knew I had to make some kind of... Uh, I knew I wanted to write about it because of the feeling. I didn't really care if people read this, this theory or not or understood the theory or not. I just wanted that feeling of awe, that feeling of uh, awakening and understanding. Something about coming, becoming conscious and becoming alive um, has always been fascinating to me and it's really inspiring. So musically, I said to the guys very early on, I explained all this to them and I said, I really want a piece of music somewhere on the record that sounds like the start of consciousness. And uh, it was an email. And I remember them just like, um, <laughs> okay, I mean, if you want to try and do that, John, we, we, we'll try and do that, you know. <laughs> and um, we did, we made it. We made In Birdsong, which is which is about that moment. And it tries to make that feel like it's happening, um, which is obviously impossible, but you, you can do it with art because you don't have to explain. It's just about the feeling. So yeah, but so there's lots of stuff all over the record with, hearing voices or having a split, you know, a dual personality or living a false life or being a zombie or being brought back to life, just references and, and words relating to it. Um, there's not like a grand narrative. I, I don't like it when a concept gets too, too conceptual on a record, but I like to know that, that there is a basis and that there is um, a through line and there's the same person thinking the same things no matter what they're singing to you that day kind of thing. I mean, there's moments on the record that you don't, don't really relate to by camera mind at all, like uh, Violent Sun, but at the same time, there's that sort of desperate feeling and that um, need for um, redemption that sort of is somehow tied into that theory for me, even though it's, you know, it's not really like that. It's just what the effect it had on me. Yeah, yeah it's sort of that idea of high concept as opposed to high brow. So yeah. it's like, it's a concept that you worked with, but everyone can tap into it. You shouldn't need to read anything. You should just need to listen to the music. But you have. But for me, that's where it all came from. Um, but it's not important in the way that some concept albums are. It doesn't matter. something in the white matter. It suddenly grabs you before you even understand its meaning. And sonically, you hear a sort of processed heartbeat, almost like a fetal ultrasound, adding to that feeling of human consciousness and coming alive. You know how it starts, that it's like, it sounds like it's a heartbeat. And then you get this, it's like a synth pitter patter, like a drizzle. So that's a great example of, um, Alex being Alex. So I brought that song as a demo to the band and it was just very orchestral, kind of cinematic 
big sounding song with like drums and and big strings and me going ah here and um and he was like yeah it's it's really good john but i want to have just you know can i take it away and, and work on it and he brought back this really crazy synth thing that he'd made so all those little drips that's like little uh digital I don't even I don't even know what it is. It's all these little clocks that have made their own beats out of their own brain. And they're all playing these notes. You give it the chords and then it plays notes when it thinks it should and all this stuff. And I don't know, I don't even know what, what he did. But it has this really unique um feel to it, like uh, something sort of crystallizing and coming to life. And he managed to make this um exactly what I wanted early on, which was that sort of coming alive feeling um so amazingly and do it in a kind of cutting edge way and i was just like well cool thanks that you know <laughs> now what i consider to be great emotional song also sounds like a you know a very pushing the envelope cool band <laughs> you know and i'm like cool thanks yeah that's that's just that's just what i need <laughs> it elevates everything right yeah i also felt that sort of pitter patter sound the effect the like rain it's not washing everything away because like if you have a storm or something there's a violence and a force to it that washes everything away but this was just like gentle effect that nature can have like a light drizzle changes yeah, the mood like a flood. it's like a, a nourishing rain yeah there's a lot of nature in the lyrics toys talking about the sun but i mean i've been talking about the sun since the second record and there's a lot on get to on get to heaven as well as a song with sun in the title and here it is again it's it's god you know is the sun it creates everything and it's the only thing worth worshiping so why why wouldn't i um but yeah birds singing and, and leaves growing and things like that have been more important to me than donald trump recently <laughs> That's a good antidote um, <laughs> to it. Um, so with a song like in Bird Song, so you actually wrote the song as such and you you had the lyrics and you had a very good idea of how you wanted it to sound. Yeah. And then you bring it in there and um, and Alex says, well, actually, this is what I want to do with it now. So how do the other two fit into it? They don't really. Um, no, honestly, they don't. They, we, 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 Alex and I, write, we do write the music. They will have opinions and suggestions but they don't actually write so at the end of the day me and Alex can can just say nah if we really want but I mean if they if they if they really think this is terrible or wouldn't it be really good if we did this then we will try it I mean Jeremy spent most of the year playing with Foles he he came back at the end of it and was like oh cool there's an album there that means he he doesn't have to do the work but he also doesn't get a huge say that's the kind of trade-off, you know, it's like, we've written these songs, Jez, so you've got to play them now. But I make it sound, you know, stricter than it is. If someone has an idea, then we would try it out. We always do. But yeah, it's me and Alex for, for the most part. It, it's interesting that you can negotiate that, that like you've been in a band for long enough that they, like everybody understands, you know, what their role is and when to give and when to push. And um, the actor was also interesting to me. Mm. I, I, f I feel like the first half had a different mood, maybe to the last two or three songs, like it was going somewhere different. And like the, the actor has that sort of reverb drench. It reminded me of Smashing Pumpkins of um, 1979. Good one, yeah. And also like I was trying to figure out what it meant because when I first heard it, I liked the sound of it. And then mm -hmm. I, I listened to it a couple more times and then I was like, is it this role that you're that you're playing now where you're like, I don't want to be this person that's always yelling, everybody listen to me, listen to me, this is what's going on, because it's it's like so antagonistic in some ways, but but it hasn't changed the outcome of anything. And so it's sort of like I if there is a left and right side of your brain, there's a sort of like a reckoning and a negotiating and a like acceptance. It's really about wanting to drop all your responsibilities and have someone else take over on one level. That's sometimes how I feel. Um, but on another, there is the, the whole bicameral thing where in times of stress, it's thought that a schizophrenic person, the other side of their brain literally takes over their consciousness and does what needs to be done or they, or they start issuing commands or whatever it is. And I love this idea of having a doppelganger who is going to take over your life. But also for me, there's a, in the bicameral sense, it's like, 
another another you taking over, but no one else even notices because it's all happening inside your mind. And just all these things about this feeling of like, well, can I just give up my responsibilities and can someone else take over, please? And then like, I'm sort of saying, yes, they can. Adults, you can do that. It, you know, it's, it's all a sort of elaborate way of talking about responsibility, really. To With lines such as, to the bigots in the bat cave, and frat boys telling me that I've got no business sitting in business class, that whole idea that those men to protect us have abandoned us, of class, and where one belongs, it goes to the heart of this painful moment we're all experiencing. Where was your head when you were writing that song? Um, not great. Uh, there's a lot of love lawn kind of songs on the record and that will be one of them that lyrically i it was towards the end of the writing and i realized that i hadn't really put much humor on the record and so i just thought okay i'll put it all in planets and so the the verses are actually really quite silly um they're just sort of very punny or, or you know jokey you've heard them um but then the chorus actually is quite heartfelt um thing so yeah, it was a it was just my way of of talking about um not feeling like a a catch, I guess, saying yeah, I'm I'm useless at this and that and this and I don't belong here and I'm not very good at this. Why would anyone want me? And then asking, can you, you know, can you love me? And of course, it's very basic. It's funny because people a lot of people have asked me like what's going on with that can you love me chorus, you know, what do you mean? And it's like I just mean that. You know, I've I've made it so that people won't accept it when I'm straight with them now. They're always like, you know, what what's this one about? And it's like, it's pretty obvious, dude. <laughs> um, yeah, it's nice to get to that place where you can sort of play with people. You can fuck with them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's what I was planning on since day one. <laughs> um, which brings me to like my favorite track on the album, um, The Violent Sun. And and I, I love this track so much. Sun has a slightly different texture than the other songs. Do you know this? There was just something to it. And I don't know if it was a, a glimpse into what you guys might do next, where you might go next. But what was it like for you writing that song? It, it, did, it, did it have some of that feeling to it that it was different or no? Absolutely did. Um, it was based on three different demos, I think. Alex had that chorus and I wrote another song that and the chorus of that song was what's now the bridge, the terror era bit. Um, and it just ended with the crying out. And that was the chorus done. And then it, but Alex had another chorus that started then. And we thought, well, let's just put these two together. Let's just have a chorus and then another chorus because the best songs in the world are 
the whole thing should sound like a chorus. And as soon as we did that, we were just all stood around in the rehearsal room listening to the, the demo play back, and we were just all going, fucking hell, that's so exciting. And I kind of knew from then that it was going to be the best song on the record. And then it was a case of getting the lyrics right, which I worked really hard on. Um, but really, it was a song that I've been trying to write for a long time and grab that to grab that feeling of being incredibly euphoric but sort of devastated at the same time is really hard to do it's something we call the sad party and we're always trying to grab that feeling to to sort of dance your way through a badness or feel so overwhelmed that you don't know what is good and what is bad anymore it's just feeling coming into you i had to make the lyrics match that i knew the lyrics had to be had to be good so i took took a while over them and loads of little decisions all add to it so we didn't have any breaks we didn't have any calmness the lyric starts with and so it feels like it's already been going for a long time and making it sound like i've messed up the words by saying something like the words are wrong but in the right order because that's wrong that can't be that can't exist but perhaps my words are wrong and um, all these little things that make you feel as though it's happening to you right now we made the song sound as if it's a bit too loud and it's a bit too confusing just lots of choices like that add to it really so it's it's very um it's actually very considered like we really wanted to capture a feeling more so than i think anything else we've done usually we just let the feelings come through but this was like let's make the feeling happen first when i was listening to it i was thinking oh it's like uplifting music for the apocalypse absolutely yeah all our music um, is though <laughs> true true um so We've been saying for the longest time that everything, everything comes from the first lines that Tom York mentions in Kid A. But then I read somewhere and you said it was um, the vocal loop on Underworld's Cowgirl. No, it's not. The Underworld thing is, it won't leave us alone. We never mentioned okay. it. Although I do like Underworld and I really liked Bokoop Fish, but I didn't know they had a, I think it's a live album called Everything, Everything. But of course, as soon as we appear, people started saying, oh, you're an Underworld fan. And I, of course, said, yes, I am. But I didn't get it from there. We didn't really get it from Radiohead, but we've said that since as a sort of tribute to them. Really, it was we just thought it was a great word and had loads of, of uh, positivity and, and potential. And putting them together like that felt like potential plus potential, which was like a, just very us. It was like, how about you have this and you have all this? It was like a description of the band. And we also sound a lot like Radiohead. So yeah, go on. <laughs> Chuck that in there. What does it mean for you as a band that you guys have, you know, the original foursome? Let's ignore the other Alex. Um, so to be around for 10 years because um, it's not easy. I mean, what's kept you guys together? Um, I think it's something you said earlier, which is knowing our roles. That's very helpful because it's not egos aren't getting damaged. There isn't really a hierarchy. We, I'm the front man and I write the lyrics and I write some of the music. But there's things that, you know, other band members do that I can't do or I won't do. And, and we split everything four ways and we're very de democratic and there's no special person, which I think is really important. So I think that, keep, I think that breaks up bands more than anything. But there's also, we've always made, tried to make stuff that really interests ourselves rather than just following the money. And I know no band would admit to that, but we really haven't. We've made a lot of decisions that we know have probably made less commercial sense than, than anything else. <laughs> um, but it's kept us interested and interesting, I think. On the one hand, you've sort of said in the beginning of uh, this album uh, and some of the press, how many times can you, privileged white middle-class boy, talk about blackface or race or any of those things, you know, and it's not change the outcome. But at the same time, in saying that, you have actually still talked about those things that matter to you in this album, even if it's not front and center. Um, and also, like, I guess it's important that, I mean, it's the allyship because you, in your position of privilege, is the perfect person in some ways to talk about these things because those other voices may not ever get heard. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't stop talking about it. Whether I think it's going to make any difference, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think that's a reason to start or stop it. I think it's just I'm just reflecting what's going on in my head and what's going on around me. It would be good if the things I say made somebody change their mind more closely aligned with my mind but is that really unique i think that's what everyone wants is for other people to think like they do 
And the fact that I have a loud voice doesn't strike me as interesting. I'm very aware of my privilege and I don't, don't begrudge it. But um, I don't know. My mind is always changing about how effective this kind of stuff is and whether this is what changes people or not. I think that I, I preach to the converted almost all of the time, which is fine. Um, it's good to, to say I, I agree with you with, with this team because it's the team I agree with. So I'm going to think that. But it's, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what a Twitter petition ever did. Or I don't know what, I don't know what putting a black JPEG on your Instagram ever did. You know, I, I don't know is the truth. Hopefully it made things a bit better for some people who are having a shit time. I don't want that to be my reason for art, making art or to try and change people's minds with my art. I, I'm just going to present things how I see them and reflect what's going on around me because I don't I don't know if people should agree with me because who, who the hell am I so what does like writing and putting out music as everything everything at this particular moment in time with COVID the rise of the far right the aftermath of Brexit we're all still going through this what does it mean for you to be able to make music in this time um it means it gives me a sense a great uh, privilege in that I can talk about the way all these things make me feel, whereas everyone else just has to feel them and go to the pub and talk about it. I can actually sing it and I can get people, many people saying, I understand you, um, which is really cool for me because I think a lot of people would like that. Um, it's a confusing time and it's a scary time. I don't mean you're scared of walking down the road, although some people are. I just mean that it, being unsure about the future is horrible and being afraid of dark powers rising or changes for the worse is scary thinking about what's going to happen in the future and what will happen to your children and all that stuff i get to i get to go out on a stage and say this is scary and isn't it weird and isn't it fucked up and what do you think about this and people go yes it is and i i understand you um that's an amazing privilege for me and i i'm the only one that gets to do it you know even the guys in the band aren't getting to do that so that's really awesome and i think that's what a lot of people appreciate about us is that so often i'm just saying what the hell is going on I'm not trying to say that this is what you should believe. I'm just saying, what the hell is going on, everyone? What is? They agree, you know, and they feel a bit better about the world because they realize that everyone is thinking that. It's actually the most universal thing you can say is, what the hell is going on? Um, and that's what I've realized. It's just to, to admit that you don't know. You know, I just want to keep being able to communicate. You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Jonathan Higgs, frontman of Everything Everything. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari and final mix by Carriot Harmon. A big thank you to Jonathan for use of archival tape. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and tell your friends about us. Or why not subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts? Till next time. Yeah.